All right, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church. We're ready to have our midweek service looking at basic training field manual. But before we do, let's pause for a moment in silence and utilize 1 John 1.9 and get us back into fellowship. So let's pause for a moment in silence and then I will open in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this opportunity to assemble tonight so that we can know you more through the key doctrines that are found in this manual. And so we trust, Father, that as we move through the rest of this book, that you would help us to make application where necessary. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Bruce Lee was, uh, as once said, no joke, this is true. I know we're not uh, talking about martial arts tonight. But Bruce Lee said that he fears a man, I fear not a man who has 10,000 kicks, but a man who kicks one kick 10,000 times. You know what that means? You're proficient in one kick. And so that kind of lines up with what we're doing. The basics over and over and over will eventually allow us to master it or mature in it. I think Gene's book in the basics, he took a, um, a samurai code which says that the advanced techniques are the basics mastered. And so I think that's very true. And so we're going to look at the Christian way of life tonight. And for those online, we're going to allow you to get into the audio as well in just a moment or at the end of our study, just in case you have any questions. Let me see if I can tell. Well, I can't right now. But uh, we're going to go through pages 16 and 17. If you have your booklet, uh, you can follow along. And if not, I'll have it here on the screen as well. So we're going to be looking at what Pastor Gene calls the Christian... Let's see. On the wrong page here. The Christian way of life. Page 16, he starts by listing faith, and he calls it the basic rules for Christian life. So I'll read some of these and show you what he has to say, and then I'm going to add three additional ones that I think are also important. So he starts by saying, by faith, learn to accept conditions as God's will for your life and be thankful. And he cites Romans 8.28, 1 Thessalonians 3.3. 3, and 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which talks about this is the will of God for your life. By faith, maintain fellowship with God. That's something that we champion here, and those online as well, believers in Christ. And number three, he talks about by faith, consistently and daily examine your conduct. We're not talking about lordship salvation here. He's just saying live a life that's consistent with God's word. Consistent with biblical principles, consistent with doctrine, to the point of which they understand, maintain fellowship with God, and on page 17, by faith, consistently and daily examine your conduct, confessing all known sins, 1 Corinthians 11, 28, as well as 31, and as you all know, 1 John 1, 9. And then by faith, receive the word of God daily, take it in on a consistent basis, as being more necessary than daily food. I like that. Matthew 4.4, 4, Matthew 5.6, and 2 Peter 
3.18. So these are all stressing the importance of receiving and intaking God's word on a consistent basis. And we can only do this via faith. And then point number five, he talks about approaching the throne of grace boldly in every case of need, requesting aid, casting every care on him. 1 Peter 5.8, Hebrews 4.15 and 16. And then by faith, number six, resist the attempts of Satan and he will flee from you. We're not talking about casting out demons, but the scripture talks about submitting and resisting and the devil will flee. Number seven, by faith, maintain the habit of thinking and meditating on spiritual values and priorities. Philippians 4, 6 through 9. You guys know what that passage is all about? What does that say? Be anxious for nothing. Does nothing mean sometimes or does it mean everything? Be not, be anxious for nada, nothing at all. So is that optional? What do we call that in Philippians 4? It's an imperative, which means it's a command. It's not optional. This is something that is expected of us and commanded of us. And so we don't have the option of worrying. Now, let's be real for a moment. Do we sometimes worry? Do we sometimes lose our cool? Do people get anxious? And the truth is, yes, we do. From time to time, that'll happen. But what do we do to minimize that? What can we do? Well, go ahead, Scott. All sorts of things, problem-solving devices, doctrinal rationales, pulling from God's word. So it all points to his word. Let's turn to Philippians 4 for just a moment since we're looking at it right here in the book. You'll notice that there are guidelines in Philippians 4. And he quotes... <clears throat> 6 through 9. 4, 6 through 9. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, prayer, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. It's this idea of praying, praying again, praying more, going to God with supplication, going to Him with petitions, going to Him consistently, regularly. And how do we do this? By prayer with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. And when you do, the consequence to this is that the peace of God, which surpasses or goes beyond all comprehension and understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. But it doesn't stop there, does it? He tells us what we can do in the meantime. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are what? True, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are, whatever things are, whatever things are. And he goes on and he says, and there is, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, what are we to do? Meditate on these things, right? Why is that? Because he wants us to shift our thinking. The truth is, if we're focused on the problem, constantly bombarding our thoughts with the problems, the circumstances, we negate what the scripture says when it says we walk by faith, not by 
sight. As a man thinks, so is he. So if you're stressed out and you're worried, you're worried, you're worried, you're worried, of course you're going to have tension and anxiety. So this is why the Christian life is about orienting our thoughts in the right direction, in the right place. Because we think, in life we think, every single day. How many times do you think a day? Hundreds if not thousands. What am I going to buy for food? What am I going to buy for lunch? What am I going to bring home for dinner? We think about these things over and over and over, but we also, we say things to ourselves, and that's where we get wrapped up. That's where we get into a tangle. You know what? People are saying things about me. You know what? What am I going to do? What am I going to say? The internal dialogue is what's messing us up. So we're to always orient ourselves into God's Word. You can't go wrong when you sit there and focus on His Word. Because if you focus on the news today, you're going to be down, you're going to be discouraged, and people today are depressed and full of anxiety. The, the suicidal rate is at an all-time high. I've said this over and over and over. Why? Because people are unsure today. But we need to get people into God's word. Because if they're looking at circumstances, who loves me? Where is people? Where, where's my friends? They all stab me in the back. Of course we're going to be a little anxious, a little angry and discouraged. Because we think we have nothing going for us. But if we focus on who's there, who's in our corner at all times, That'll at least minimize the tension, the anxiety, and the problems. Because I'm telling, I've been saying this in the California, my California church, that when I look and survey the areas around the world, U.S. especially, mental health is suffering big time. Kids are taking themselves out. They want, they want to exit out of life because they're anxious. Why? They don't understand what's going on today. They're thinking about this crisis in Israel and they're going into panic mode. Does this mean we're going to go into World War III? So they think about these things. They don't have parents. They're focusing on these things and they want to jump the Golden Gate Bridge. And they do. We're the only ones that have access to God's love, God's ways, God's thoughts, so that if we share it with someone, that can definitely make an eternal difference. An eternal difference. So by faith, we can resist the attempts of Satan and he will flee. By faith, we can maintain the habit of thinking and meditating on spiritual values and priorities. That's why I read 8 through... Well, actually 8. And then in verse 9, he says, These things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, Paul speaking, these do... It doesn't end with six, four, five, and six. Eight and nine continues, and he says, These things you have learned, received, and heard, and saw me, these do, and the God of peace will what? Will be with you. So there's this peace that surpasses all understanding in verse seven, and then in verse nine, the God of peace will be with you. There's two things there. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through who? The person of Christ. 
You see that in verse 6, right? Or 7. Will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Second person of the Trinity. Will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. But by the time you get to the tail end of verse 9, it says the God of peace will be with you. What's the difference there? Is that saying the same thing? What's the difference between the peace that surpasses all understanding and then in verse 9, the God of peace will be with you? What's the difference between these two? Is this nice to know? It is, is it comforting? Yes, it is, right? But what's going on here? What's the difference between 6 and, and 9 in your Bible? Okay, it's an adjective. Okay. Very good. You've got it, Scott. What else? You, you, I, see you, I see your wheels turning. Slower? Uh, let's get him some WD-40. No, but this is important. I mean, what we're seeing here is very comforting to know when you see it. When you see what's there and you see what's not there. You have the peace that comes from God in verse 6, Right? That surpasses all understanding. So when you're in a jam and you're caught in a, in, in a real tif- difficult time, he can supply you with stability. Stability that comes from God. Because here you are, you're in a wreck, you're falling apart, but his specialty is providing stability. Nine is applying it, okay. You must practice it, good. But in verse 9, I also see something else there. He's kind of reminding us, look, God is with you. The God who gives you that peace is now with you. He never left you, but it's nice to know that not only is going to supply stability, but he's with you. The God of peace is with you. Wow, that's, that's huge. Not only is going to, not only is he going to take care of your heart and your mind, meaning that whatever anxiety, whatever difficulty, whatever stressors you have, he promises to provide the stability that will deal with those issues. And not only that, as you think and reflect on these things, because the truth is, it's so easy to pray, right? Lord, I'm going through stuff, I'm going through difficulty, and then still have those Challenges, right? But notice that it doesn't stop with four and six. He doesn't just make the imperative and say, be anxious for nothing. He says, as he goes on, he says, give thanks. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Notice the word here, will garrison, will guard your hearts and minds through the person of Christ. In whom you've believed. I'm adding that part. But when you get to verse 8, after he says, the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts, garrison your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He says, here's what you do in the meantime when you still have this stuff going on in your mind. Here's how you deal with the stressors aside from the peace that's going to come from God. He says, whatever things are true, whatever things are just, Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, not negative report, good report. If there is any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, can you think of anything praiseworthy? 
You've got good health. You've got medical insurance. You've got a job still. You still have loved ones. You have a roof over your head. He says, think about those things. If there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, what do you do? Meditate on these things. Because what do we technically do when we're stressed out? We're thinking about the problem. In fact, we're meditating on the problems. That's why we're falling apart. We're so focused on the problems itself. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Instead of meditating on your problems, meditate on these things that are have virtue, that are worthy of praise. Think about these things. Because this is how you're going to get out of the rut. Think about these things. So this is how you can make the, the application of Philippians 4 become a reality in your life. Following the command of God is to meditate on these things. Go to God in prayer. Lord, thank you for this problem. I know that you're causing everything to work together for good. I might not be seeing or exhibiting, experiencing it right now, but I know that you're working behind the scenes because otherwise you wouldn't have commanded me not to worry. Because the fact that you've given me this command means that you're working something and you're going to supply me a peace that surpasses all understanding as I apply doctrine. You commanded and expected something of me, so therefore it's attainable. And you've provided additional guidelines. You said, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, think about those things. Stop thinking about all the negativity. Of course your body is going to go into shock. You're going to get an ulcer. The doctor can tell you that. You got to reduce your stress or else you're going to you're you're going to have ulcer, you're going to have gas, you're going to have all kinds of things. These are all physical symptoms of someone who's focused on the wrong things. And someone might say, "Well, Pastor Freddie, it's so hard." I I know it is. But if you orient yourself and you train yourself to get into the Word of God on a regular, habitual basis, it becomes easier because you have so many years of experience stressing out. So don't be hard on yourself. How, Whatever your age is, you have that many years of experience and worrying about things in life when things go bad. So give, don't be so hard on yourself. Look at what the Scripture says. There's a way out. There's certainly a way out and he commands us not to worry. Why? Because when you think about it, why should we worry when we have someone who's sovereign and supreme over us? Why? We have no reason. So you notice that Pastor Gene lists all these seven reasons and he calls it um, the basic rules for Christian life, overcoming by faith. Good stuff here. I like all eight of them, all seven of them, and now I'd like to include three additional points uh, from myself on top of this. It doesn't mean that these are no good. I just want to add to the whole concept of basic rules for Christian life, and here they are, beginning with number one. Page 16 of his book, I want to add these three additional truths. Number one, God has made you, has made you and me a light bearer. These are truths that we must recognize, okay? Matthew 5.14, let's look at what it says. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. I also have it here for those online, but 
for those of us who are here and you have your Bibles, Matthew 5.14. Uh, Pac, could you read Matthew 5.14? At Matthew 5.14? Okay. <laughs> Your Bible's slow? Okay. Almost there. Very good. Yep, that is it. Thank you so much. And just for the sake of the recording, if those online couldn't hear, it, it does say it in front of you. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Think about this. You are light bearers. You're like the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. So, some thoughts here. This statement is called a metaphor which emphasizes the visibility and impact of a city that is placed prominently on a hill. You have it there on the monitors for those online. If you're a note-taking type, I have it here on the notes. So, it's a metaphor emphasizing the visibility and impact of a city that is placed prominently on a hill, as per Matthew 5.14. You see it there? You are what? You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. So you and I are called light from the lips of Christ. The lips of Christ. We are light of the world. In the context of the passage, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about their role as followers of him and the influence they can have on the world. The phrase, a city set on a hill, implies a position that stands out, attracting attention and being clearly visible from a distance. You get that because it's placed on a hill. From a distance. So when Jesus says that such a city cannot be hidden, he is highlighting the conspicuous nature of its presence. So in the same way, Jesus calls us or his disciples to live in a way that stands out, boldly representing his teachings and character. They are to be noticeable in their actions, noticeable in their speech, Noticeable in their love, not hiding their faith or remaining silent about the good news of the gospel. Because we're reflecting now the life of Christ. Additionally, this metaphor suggests that the influence of a visible city on a hill extends beyond its physical borders. It impacts the surrounding areas, drawing people towards it and offering guidance or inspiration. Thus, Jesus encourages his disciples to live in such a way that their faith in action is like a city on a hill, undeniable, impactful, and visible. To bring glory to God and draw others toward him. It is a call to be bold, genuine, and unashamed in our witness for Christ. That's a light. That's what light represents, and that's the context of what we're seeing. A light, a city that's placed on its, on a hill. So you see that it's boastful, it's bold. Bold enough to be seen, bold enough to be visible, so that all eyes can see. So he calls you what? What does he call you? A light. 
on a hill. You are to be visible, bold, seen. You're a light. That's one, point number one that I wanted to bring out as characteristics of a Christian life. Continuing on, there's still a few more things here. He encourages his disciples to live in such a way that their faith in action is like a city on a hill, undeniable, impactful, and visible, to ultimately bring glory to God and draw others towards him. It's a call to be bold, genuine, unashamed in our witness for Christ. And just as a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, believers are called to be lights in the world. Every believer united together as the body of Christ represents a city shining brightly with the light of God's love, God's truth, and his righteousness. So believers are meant to display the characteristics of a well-positioned city on a hill drawing attention to the goodness and the grace of God. Your actions, your attitudes, and your love should stand out in such a way that they cannot be ignored. Just as a city is on a hill, serves as a beacon, guiding and influencing those around it, we believers are called to be guiding lights for others, leading them towards God and His truth. Right? So, by living as light bearers, He calls us light, and reflecting the love and teachings of who? Jesus Believers have the opportunity to impact their communities and the world, bringing hope, positive change, and drawing others to the transformative power of the gospel. So imagine, this is what you are. You're called light. How many times have you heard that before? We've heard it maybe several times, right? But this is what you are. You're like a city on top of a hill. You're supposed to be visible. You're supposed to be seen. So we have to bring out the nuances of what that means. And that's basically what it means. We're not to be, we're not supposed to be lackadaisical and just saying, well, I'm a Christian. Praise the Lord. No, we're called light. That's profound. What does light do in darkness? The world is called darkness. So when we execute and traverse through darkness, it lights up and illuminates the area. We're living in a world that's dark, let's be honest, right? So we're supposed to impact their lives by how we live, by what we say, by what we don't say, because we illuminate the area. We make an impact by our life. And so as light, that's what we ought to do. That's what we're called to be. We're light bearers by living as light bearers and reflecting the love and teachings of Jesus, believers have the opportunity to impact their communities. And ultimately, we impact the world. So if we're going to change the culture, if we're going to influence the culture, guess who it starts with? It starts with Rick. It starts with us, believers. Every one of us who are in Christ, positionally in Christ, that can make a difference. Not just average churchgoers, but those who are grounded in doctrine, those who are inculcating the Word of God on a regular basis, who are figuring out and seeing what the text says for what it is. You are called light bearers. You are light of the world. 
Do something about it. Shine. I'm not talking about singing. Uh, shine your light. I'm saying, what is that, uh, Laura? This, yeah, I'm not talking about that shining of light. I'm saying, I'm saying you're to shine your light properly, making a difference wherever you go. You can't hide that. You cannot avoid this. And who is it that said this? It would be different if Freddie is saying this. Hey, you guys are lights. But it's not Freddie saying this. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew 5, part of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the light of the world. What does that mean, light of the world? It starts with you and me. We keep saying, oh, you know, we can, this world is always just going to be the way it is. True, until the millennium, but we can do something about it now. And I don't think Jesus wants us to be light of the world and be lackadaisical. He wants us to make an impact. We're to go out there and do something. If a light is designed to light up the darkness, not converting the world, but doing something proactively, then we ought to. We should be doing something. Especially when we see these things from a, another angle. We're light. So another command, another point of application here, or another, did I call it, basic rule for Christian life. So number two, application of the new commandment. Application of the new commandment. What's the new commandment? Believe in love. Okay, very good. Believe in love. And in John 13, 34 and 35, the new commandment is a new command I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, who will know? The world. That's correct. So, in some way, how will the world know that we have love for one another? Based on this verse. So, if I, if we're loving each other here in church, will the world know that? What do you think? How are the, how is the world going to know that we love one another? And we're his disciples inside here when they're out there. How are they going to know? Okay, we need to love the people in the world. But if you notice closely, Vanessa, can, can you read this verse for me slowly? Mm-hmm, and 35. Okay, very good. So in the context of John 13, who is Jesus speaking to? The disciples. That's right. His speak, he's speaking to his disciples, and yet if we love one another the way that Jesus did, um, they will know that you are my disciples. So the question I have is, how will they know, and who are the they? The world. How will the world know if we're in here and they're out there? Huh? How you treat them. Okay, how you treat them. But Jesus is wanting us to love each other. So how are they out there going to know that we love one another? 
Okay, when we preach the gospel to them, very good, Lean. Uh, when we preach the gospel, but again, the question is, I'll say it slowly again. <laughs> no, it's, I just, this is good. This is good. This is, we're in class, right? A new, new commandment I give to you, you all, his disciples, that you love one another. So he's talking about loving David, right? Loving Debbie, loving Mike, loving Roland, Laura, Scott, Jerry, Kareem, Lean, Vanessa, and even Rick. Especially Rick, right? So he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. So now there's a little twist here. As I have loved you. You love one another as the way I did. The way I loved you. That's how you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. If, conditional clause, if you have love for one another, if you do, then they will know that you are my disciples. So, when Jesus and his disciples were going out and feeding 5,000, feeding 4,000, where were they? Were they in church? No. Where were they? They were outside. They were walking. They were on sea. Contextually, we have to remember that they were outside doing ministry so that the world could see them. When they would get baptized, they'd come around, what are you guys doing? Oh, Scott's baptizing us. What's that all about? Well, we were following Jesus in the waters of baptism. Oh, really? What's that all about? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Talk to David. And so it would be a witnessing opportunity to show the world and declare to the world that you're followers of Jesus Christ. However, right here, Jesus seems to be saying, look, I know I'm leaving soon. He doesn't say I'm inserting this, but contextually we know that Jesus is going to leave soon. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be nailed on the cross. So he, his last parting words with his disciples were, look, you need to pull together, okay? I want you to love each other, one another, the way that I have loved you. And what was the example he left them prior to this passage? What did Jesus do to his disciples? Uh, very good after that. But there was something he did as an illustration in this chapter. And he washed their feet. Very good. So that was a sacrificial example of caring for one another. If the master can wash your feet, likewise you should be able to. Don't forget. That's right. So I'm going to take my shoes. Who wants to take, wash my shoes first? <laughs> Thank you, Lee. But that's the example Jesus left for his disciples. It's a love for his disciples. And he said, I want you to love one another. Remember, when they were traveling together in their, seat, in their circuit, the disciples were always battling who's the greatest. Remember that? He said, look, it's not about who's the greatest. I want you to stop that, okay? You love one another as I have loved you. 
Then by this all will know that you are my disciples. Is that important? It's important. If we, if we think evangelism and witnessing is important, we don't even have to do anything except love each other here. Because somehow the world will know that we're his what? What did it say? We're his disciples. All we have to do is, do we have to go to the knocking on doors say, I'm a disciple of Christ and we'd like to invite you to church? No. Is that important to do? Yes, I do believe that's part and parcel of what we should be doing at the proper time in the proper context. But according to John 13, 34 and 35, if we would love one another in such a way publicly that the world sees that and catches that, they will know we're disciples of Christ. Think about that. We don't even do anything except love each other. Remember when we went to... Scott, where did we go? We watched... Mo, was it Moses? Lancaster? Examples of being public together like that, I believe, fulfills this passage, or this verse. Where we're out and people are like, what are they doing? And we're out together, side by side. Somehow, subtly, that conveys that we're disciples of Christ. We're not doing anything... It's possible that God the Holy Spirit is working amidst the people as we're gathered together taking care of each other. You know what? No, I'll I'll take care of the meal or whatever. God the Holy Spirit takes that and sinks that into the people's hearts and they say, hey, they see us praying over a meal. That's really nice. I, I guess they're Christians. All I'm saying is if you take the words of Christ, he specifically says here, by this all will know that you're my disciples. You don't have to claim you're a disciple of Christ. You don't have to explain that. That will come as a result of loving one another as I have loved you. And how did he love us? How did he love the disciples? He started with bathing their feet, washing their feet. And that doesn't mean scrubbing feet. It just literally, I mean, that was an example, but it's the idea of putting the other person first before self. And if we express... Oh, go ahead, Rick. Well, I mean, I continue and then break all Yeah, and so the idea here is it's sacrificial. When you follow the, the example is set forth by Christ where he puts his disciples even before himself and he didn't, th- he didn't have an attitude of, hey, I'm your teacher. I'm, I'm God the Son. You should be washing my feet. He didn't have that kind of mentality. I mean, sometimes people do that today. You know what? I'm the superior. I'm the boss. And so that runs contrary to the grace principle as set forth in John 13. So Jesus taught his disciples, look, you're not trying to jockey for power here. You're not who's the greatest. Don't worry about that. The least, the the last will be first. The first will be last. That's the principle. And by the way, if you love one another the way that I loved you, then you will display to the world your disciples of mine. Right? Go ahead, Rick. I'm sorry. Very harsh. Be lost. Right. So, and the imagery here and the context is referring to confession, right? We know it's it's the idea of confessing your sins. He's teaching them an example of what it means to wash. There is a, 
a one-time bathe. But remember, what did he say? All of you are bathed and washed or bathed except one. One of you, all of you are clean except one. So in here, he's teaching the importance of confessing and forgiving each other. And so that's another story. But yes, he did. And Jesus was uh, definitely extending grace. He certainly did. So this is point number two or example number two that I think needs to be in, included here. A new commandment that you, that you love one another as I have loved you. These are choice words from Christ himself. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So there is no boundaries here. You ought to love one another as he has loved. So there are no boundaries. It's open to specifically the believers. Does that mean we can't love unbelievers? No. The scripture does talk about that as well. But here we're talking about the inner circle. The inner circle are those who are in Christ. So we ought to be taking care of one another. And I think Galatians 6.10 comes to mind too, if if my memory serves me correctly. Let's go to Galatians 6.10. And whoever gets that, if you can kindly read it so that it gives me a chance to find it. Is it in the Old Testament or? Okay, Galatians 6.10. I'm sure if I... Yes, if someone has it, and then I'll read it one last time for our online audience. Galatians 6.10. Very good. So, in conjunction with what we saw in John 13, we also see in Galatians 6.10 this principle. What do we see in Galatians 6.10? What's Paul saying here? The believers are the priority. Very good in what? Doing what? That's right. Loving one another. And doing good when you have an opportunity, right? As we have opportunity, when we can, let us good, do good to all people. That's open to all. But he says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we take care of one another. We link that with what he says in John 13. We have this whole picture and imagery of loving the brethren and prioritizing each other, okay? So should we love unbelievers? Yes, we should. Should we do good to unbelievers? Yes, according to Galatians 6.10. And when you connect this with other verses in the Old Testament, it does talk about loving your neighbors. In fact, I think I may have this here. So let me just read the rest of my notes here. So on the bottom, here you go. New command, Jesus introduces a new commandment emphasizing the significance of love among his followers. While the command to love one another is not entirely new, Leviticus 19.18, where it talks about love, what makes it new is the example of Christ's love as the standard and the source from which it should flow. It should originate from Christ. Love as Jesus' love Jesus calls his disciples to love one another in the same selfless, sacrificial manner that he loved them. His love was characterized by humility, compassion, forgiveness, and serving others. I think that's what Lean had pointed out earlier. Serving others. And believers are to emulate his love. 
putting their own interest aside and showing genuine care for what? For one another. Witness to the world. Jesus taught that the love displayed among believers will be a visible demonstration of their discipleship, their love for Christ. Genuine love and unity among believers serve as a testimony to the world, drawing others to the truth of the gospel. It speaks volumes about the transformative power of Christ's love in their lives. These verses emphasize that love is not just a feeling or a sentiment, but a deliberate action, volitional action, demonstrated through selfless care and concern for others. By loving one another as Christ loved them, his disciples not only show their commitment to follow him, but their love because a power, becomes a powerful testimony that draws others to the truth and goodness found in Jesus. So in summary, John 13, 34 to 35 calls believers to love one another genuinely and sacrificially, modeling their love after the example of Jesus. Through this love, their discipleship is demonstrated and the world can witness the transformative power of Christ's love within their lives and relationships. So God has made you his salt. We're going to look at now 5.13. I apologize for some of this is broken up here. It's supposed to say Matthew 5.13. Matthew 5.13. It's there at least in front of you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for what? Nothing. But be, to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So the point is, as the last pillar, I would call it, you have the first pillar of what are we called to be? Light. And what was the second one? We are to? Application of love. So light, love, and thirdly, God has made you salt. He has made you salt. So listen to this. You are the salt of the earth. First it was you are the light of the world. Now you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So here's some points regarding the salt. Salt of the earth. Jesus describes his followers as salt of the earth. In biblical times, salt served various purposes, including preservation, flavoring, purification, and metaphorically, Jesus is referring to the role believers have in preserving and influencing the world around them for good. So salt losing its saltiness. Jesus challenges his disciples by pointing out the consequences of salt losing its saltiness. If salt becomes contaminated or loses its effectiveness, it becomes what? Useless. Similarly, if believers fail to live according to their calling and the teaching of Jesus, they lose their ability to positively impact the world. And I use the word world because it will. We have the ability to impact the world as light and as salt. Being thrown out and trampled underfoot. 
When salt loses its saltiness, it becomes valueless and may be discarded or trampled underfoot. This emphasizes the importance of believers maintaining the effectiveness of their witness and staying true to their calling. Failing to do so may result in their message being disregarded or ignored. By the way, is there anything that salt could be good for if it loses its flavor? No? Closely, what's that? Traction. It still can be good for something. When it snows here, what do you do with the salt? You put it on the ground. I haven't done that yet. This will be our first year. But you throw the salt on the sand and it gives you traction. So there is still something it's useful for. In fact, isn't that what we saw in this verse? It's good to be trampled under the foot. We sometimes hear, well, it's good for nothing. No, God can still use you, but it'll be trampled under the foot. But he does want us to make an impact to preserve our culture and to provide flavor. With us involved, we can provide flavor. We can provide preservation. We can provide all sorts of things as we make application to doctrine. So when you pull these three together, light, application of love using free will, our volition, and thirdly, salt, when you combine these three, we have a lot of work to be done. Where we are, where we go, people you know, your neighbors, people at your work, you have a way to impact others. It all starts with you and me. Don't ever think that God can you, can't use you. He certainly can. It doesn't matter if you're serving in this capacity or not. You have life. You have breath. You can do something because you are light and salt according to his word as we saw together. That's why I wanted to add this to Pastor Gene's material because I knew that there were some things here that we can incorporate on top of the issue of or the um, the principle of exercising faith. Faith is key because without faith it is impossible to please God. But I think these three points here are also important because it serves as a reminder that we're all light, we're all salt, and we're all commanded to love one another. Why? Because we need each other. In a world that is cold, in a world that is difficult and challenging, we need each other. And if we love each other, that will so impact the world according to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself. So now, um, if you're online and you want to make a comment, let's try this for the first time. I don't know if I need to unmute them, David. Marty, I see you. Rod, I see you there. Rudy. Oh. Okay, Marty. Thank you. Okay, let's see. Rod. Hi, Rod. Hi, Rudy. I see you there. Hi, iPhone. Okay, guys, I'm unmuting you or I'm allowing you to, um, there you go. I'm allowing you to unmute. So if you want to unmute your mic and say hello. Hi, Karen, are you there? Just unmute. Hello. Hi, Steve. Hello, Deacon. Hello. So uh, any thoughts or comments that you guys uh, have? Might have. Yeah, uh, can you? I can hear you. Can uh, you hear yes, sir. Uh, hi, Marty. This, this Marty very good, Marty. So I'll see you on Sunday then, huh? <laughs> All right. Very. 
All right, Rod or uh, Rudy or Steve, Karen, it's good that you can join us. I appreciate your... Okay, very good. Oh, thank you, Karen. I get it right every now and then. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you, Karen. Appreciate that. Rudy, Rod, anybody? Thanks. Okay, very good. Yeah. Very good. Uh, that is true. I think we sometimes forget we are the light or we're like a city on a hill. So that is very, very true. We need to recognize that or else we won't live accordingly. We will just think, oh, I'm a Christian, but we are called specific things. We're called to love. We're called to be salt. We're called to be light. And so we're to act out on faith, trusting him. And so all of these are very, very important. And we're looking at the Christian life. And so these are all vital, vital. And you know me, I've been trying to cover uh, phase two for quite some time. And I'm, after much thought, I'm going to compile a lot of my notes and put it in a booklet form and just put it together and just kind of clean it up some and put it in a booklet form, maybe PDF or a booklet so that we can distribute it. There's a lot of things that um, if we go over, I think they're going to be helpful. So, but for now, I think if nobody else has any thoughts or comments, and we will close in prayer. Anybody here? Okay. Let's just close in a word of prayer then. And thank you for your time. Father, thank you as always for giving us the opportunity to gather together so that we can be uh, applying your word and not forsaking the assembling of saints. And Father, we're here because of that uh, command and imperative. And so we're grateful that we can honor your word. And so I trust that as we continue to study together and make application where necessary, it would bring you honor and glory because you alone are worthy of that. So I ask now that you would keep us all safe and allow us to get home safely and rest because of our day tomorrow. So you wake us up tomorrow so that we can continue to serve you in every way possible, making an impact in the devil's world, applying these truths as we see them. And we ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good night, everyone online. Thank you so much. All right. Why don't we just pray real quick? Father, thank you as always for uh, allowing us to go to you go to you in the throne of grace. We want to lift up uh, Theron and ask that you would expedite his recovery. Apparently, he's not feeling his best, and we think this is just normal because of the surgery that he underwent. Just the same, we want to ask that you would have your uh, healing hand upon him so that we can see him ASAP. He is a very vital part of our church, and so we ask that you would just intervene and heal him so that we can see him. As soon as possible, we ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.